you've just found episode number 46 of Monster Kid Radio, the twice-weekly podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your host, Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to this week's shows because I've got something I've been looking forward to talking to you guys and gals about for a while now. I was fortunate enough to write the foreword to the new book, White Zombie, the novelization by frequent Monster Kid Radio guest Stephen D. Sullivan. We're going to have him on the show this week. In part one of our discussion, we're going to talk a little bit about how he decided to take White Zombie and turn it into a novel, as well as the whole novelization process, and a little bit about his history as somebody who's written novel adaptations for other media. And because we're talking about the novelization of White Zombie in this week's episodes of Monster Kid Radio, I thought it fitting that we'd play the song Electric Zombie at the top of the show by the band Waka Jawaka. You can find out more about them at their website, wakajawaka.bandcamp.com. It's from their album, Introducing Waka Jawaka, and you'll be able to hear the song in its entirety at the end of this episode. Of course, there will be a link to the Bandcamp page in our show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. Other things you can find on our website, our contact information, our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com, and our voicemail line is 503 4795 MKR. If you have any feedback for the show, any thoughts about anything that we've talked about in the past, or have suggestions for things you'd like me to talk about here in the future, I'm all ears. Plus, I'm planning on doing a special feedback episode down the line once I get enough feedback. Now, Steve's already called and left us a voicemail about something we've talked about here in the past. Our serials episode spurred some discussion from him. We'll include that in that future feedback episode down the line. Also on our website, you'll find a link to our Facebook group, as well as a link to our Live 365 channel. Now, this is a place that you can go and listen to music and the occasional trailer from movies from the 30s, 40s, 50s, a little bit into the 60s. Admittedly, it's not been updated in quite a while. However, I still get an email at least once a week from somebody saying that they liked the station through Live 365. So if you are a user of that service, please look up Monster Kid Radio or again, follow the link from our website to go check that out. I want to say a big congratulations to Monster Kid Radio guest Joe Stuber. He was on the show when we talked about Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein a few months back. He just launched his new show, Comic Book Central. Now, this podcast is a comic book-centric podcast. The tagline is that he's bringing comic books to life. So it's not necessarily just a comic book review show. Instead, he's talking about bringing comic books out of their four-color media into something different, like maybe a film or a TV show or something like that. In episode number one that was just released last week, his guest was Stan Lee. So you know he's not messing around. Go check him out. I'm going to play a promo for Comic Book Central right after I play the promo for Daikaiju Attack, which is another writing project by Stephen E. Sullivan that I think everybody, if you're not reading it already, you need to because it's really good. And then, of course, we've got part one of our chat with Stephen E. Sullivan. Why don't we kick things off right now? It's 1966. The space race is on. The Cold War is heating up. And giant monsters are destroying Japan. Dai Kaiju Attack. The serialized giant monster story. Presented free every week on DaikaijuAttack.com and SDSullivan.com. Become a member of the Daikaiju Attack Group on Facebook. Join the action today. 
Hey listeners, this is Joe Stuber. If you're a fan of Indiana Jones, you might have heard the indie comic book segment I co-host with Keith Voss over on the IndieCast. Well, if you like those segments, you'll want to check out a brand new podcast I'm hosting and producing called Comic Book Central. The mission of Comic Book Central is to showcase and celebrate how our favorite four-color adventures are represented in the media. That's right, when a comic book is brought to life, Comic Book Central is there. You'll hear from some of your favorite actors, directors, producers, and writers. And everyone is at a hand in contributing to the massive explosion of comic book projects we're seeing on Broadway, television, video games, and film today. Hey, how'd you like a preview? Well, here it is. Take a listen. The world of podcasting has become super... It's Comic Book Central, the podcast devoted exclusively to interviews with the creative talents that have brought comics to life. Greetings, true believers. This is Stan Lee. When do you think the Academy is going to wise up and create a special Oscar category for best cameo? I don't know. They're just asleep on their feet. Maybe your show, maybe this interview will be the turning point. I'm Kenneth Johnson, the creator of the Incredible Hulk television series. Was there ever thought to have the Hulk speak on the show? No, Hulk not speak. Hulk talk is dumb. Hulk smash. Good, good. <laughs> fire bad. Yeah, fire bad. Ha, ah, ah. She is Aaron Gray. Aaron, welcome to the show. I ended up being a contract player making, I think it was $600 a week. Steele was doing great. He was making the big bucks. And then... You got the posters, though. You got <laughs> yes. the posters. Come I on. look better in white spandex. What can I say? <laughs> you know? Hi, this is Rebecca Staub, the invisible woman from the original Fantastic Four movie. I was familiar with the Fantastic Four. So, you know, I went and got a couple of the comic books and talked to people in the comic book store. Let me get this right. Going for the role of Sue Storm, you go into a comic book store and start talking to the guys there? Yeah. <laughs> Could you please tell me how that went? He is an actor, former professional boxer, and a Kryptonian monolith. Let's welcome to the show Jack O'Halloran. What's tougher, uh, going toe-to-toe with George Foreman or with a Hollywood executive? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, Hollywood executives aren't that difficult, actually. Do you dress in all black when you go after him? I wear my Krypton suit. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Adrienne Barbeau, Catwoman from Batman the Animated Series, and you're listening to Comic Book Central. Perfect. I have an obsession with the 70s game show Match Game. We have to remember Richard Dawson. Ever hit on you? I don't think so. I did the pilot for the gong show, and <laughs> Chuck Barris, he asked me out a couple of times. <laughs> Well, hi, guys. I'm Elias Salkin, the originator of Superman the Movie. Interesting casting note when we're talking about Clark and Lois, Lyle Wagner and Linda Carter. Absolutely. Boy, you did your homework, man. Linda Carter comes to see me. I was at the Beverly Hills Hotel pool. Wonder Woman. My mouth falls on the floor. It's Captain Marvel himself, Jackson Bostwick. Great costume, by the way. Great costume. Oh, it's fantastic. Do you have it? Yeah, I have one. When was the last time you were in? In it. Well, actually, I, I went around the house. The dogs like it. And uh, <laughs> when I barbecue them. Hey, Captain Marvel, uh, flip me a burger. Yeah. Shazam! Hey, this is Michael Rosenbaum. Lex Luthor from Smallville. Uh, make sure you listen to this guy's show. He sounds like a good guy. People should listen to you, Joe. You are listening to Comic Book... Comic Book... Comic Book Central. Where comic books come to life. Excelsior! Well, as you can tell, my guests and I have a lot of fun talking about their comic book theme projects. But I can see we also touch on some serious topics as well. 
It's fascinating to get the stories behind the stories with some of these folks. Uh, these interviews are pretty revealing, to say the least. It's Comic Book Central. Check it out online at comicbookcentral.net, on Facebook at Comic Book Central Network, Twitter at Comic Book CTRL, and make sure you subscribe to it on iTunes. It's Comic Book Central, where comic books come to life. If you ask a modern monster movie enthusiast about zombie movies, they're going to go to the flesh-hitting, the brain-eating, the Romero-style, maybe the 28-day-style type zombie. But the truth is, we had zombie movies before 1968, before Uncle George did his thing. And the very first one of these movies is White Zombie from 1932, starring the immortal Bela Lugosi. Well, this is a movie that slipped into the public domain over the years. You can find it on many different box sets. Just came out a couple of months ago, I believe, as a nice Blu-ray edition, and there's another Blu-ray edition coming next year. Even though the movie is readily available, you might want a little bit more White Zombie in your life, and there's a really good way to do it these days, because Monster Kid Radio guest Stephen D. Sullivan has recently released his adaptation of the classic film, and I've got him here on the show. How's it going, Steve? Hey, it's going really well, Derek. How's it going with you? It's going great, man. It's been a little while since we've had you on. How have things been going? It, it has been. I've been insanely busy. You know, I mean, uh, even without, you know, like a kid graduating from college and moving to New York City and, and the other kid in the middle of college, and anniversaries and that kind of stuff, I have been just a writing fiend in 2013. You've been banging it out with your Daikaiju Attack series, which is a Facebook-only short story series, right? Well, it, it's an online-only series. Okay. I do have, I have a Facebook group devoted to supporting it. But it's a, a free weekly giant monster serial. And if you go to daikaijuattack.com or stephendsullivan.com or sdsullivan.com, uh, you can read it free online every week. It's only online, but not only on Facebook. Gotcha. And we do try to play the promo for that here on the show every once in a while. And, of course, there will be a link in the show notes to that website as well as your own website. Now, we mentioned Daikaiju Attack. You've been writing a lot, but obviously we want to talk about the new book the new book yes which means a lot to me people who know my background as a podcaster know that for five years i did the zombie thing white zombie is one of my favorite zombie movies hands down one of the most important if not the most important zombie film of all time it started the whole thing off right right the, the first uh, appearance of the word zombie in mm -hmm. in a major film anyway Right. Yeah, it's the first feature-length film. Like I said, 1932, Lugosi's hot off the success of Dracula. A lot of the movie was shot on the Universal Studios lot, so it has a nice, rich feel. What drew you to White Zombie in the first place? Um, well, it's a great film, and it stars Bella, and anything starring Bella is, is interesting to most of us monster kids. And it's it's very moody, but... The way it kind of came about is I've I've done a reasonable amount of of tie-in work working on other people's characters, whether it was in comics when I was doing uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or the Dungeons and Dragons work that I did or the Dragonlance books that I did, and I also have done a number of movie novelizations, including the kids' novelization for the original Iron Man film and the Thunderbirds film and and a couple of others, and I've always found it really fun to work on those kind of things, to work on a novelization or work on one of these major properties. But the problem with it is that at the end of the day, all your work belongs to the rights holder of the property. So 
the Speed Racer people own the Speed Racer stuff that I did. The Thunderbirds people own the Thunderbird stuff that I did. Uh, Iron Man, obviously, owned by Marvel, now Disney, and, and you know, who knows what else they'll swallow up next. And the, <laughs> the, the trouble with doing that, that kind of work is that you don't have any control over the work that you've done. So, for instance, there have been points at which I've had a number of very popular fantasy books out, and the rights holder would suddenly decide they were just going to put them out of print. And when something goes out of print, if you have a royalty attached to it, suddenly you're not getting any royalties anymore. So the kind of income stream you're counting on from long-term investment in a project suddenly just dries up and goes away if you don't own that project. White Zombie, since it's public domain, that means that the public is free to create derivative works for it. So as I was thinking, gosh, it would really be nice to do another movie adaptation, and gosh, I really don't want to spend a lot of time on something that someone else owns. Somewhere in there, actually I think it was probably listening to the B-Movie cast, a little light bulb went off on my head and said, wait a minute, there are movies that are in the public domain that I could do an adaptation of the same way I did Iron Man. And you could do that and control the property. And White Zombie was right at the top of the list of of public domain films that I thought would be a good adaptation and would play right into into the monster kids who I'm now seeing as are probably my main audience. You mentioned this in your book as well. I believe it's in the author's note. Peter H. Brothers wrote a book called Double Bat Diary, which is kind of a a different take on the classic Bella film, The Devil Bat. He didn't adapt the movie. He took the characters from the movie and did his own story kind of circling around the movie, if that makes any sense. Sure. And, and that's, a, that's a great film. That would be a wonderful film to adapt just straight up. But since he'd already done that, that obviously was out of the running. And I, I was interested in the fact that he'd taken this public domain work and done a, kind of a continuation or a, it's not really a homage. It's, it's kind of hard to explain exactly what he did, but you can find it online and look and uh, check it out on Amazon and that kind of stuff. Sure. And I thought that was a, a really interesting concept. And from there, I took the step of saying, well, yes, you could do that, but this might be kind of... I've, an answer to a question that I was asking myself, which is, how can I adapt something that's well-known, that will bring eyes to my work overall, and still own the rights? And, yeah, so all, all credit to Peter for uh, for kind of coming up with the original pseudo-concept that I developed this idea from. Yeah, his approach was, this is the true story of the true case that the film was based on, whereas what you're doing is just... I don't want to say just an adaptation because I don't want to make it sound like it's somehow lesser. In fact, it's not. I find this to be a, a grander undertaking because you have this film that you basically are trying to recreate through your prose. What was the process? I mean, how did you begin this? The way novelizations usually work, and that's what this is. This is a novelization. And okay, if you've okay. ever read a, a Star Trek novelization or any of any of the novelization of Alien or any of the kind of classic novelizations or mine, uh, what happens is that you get the script to work from, and then you add to it what you can and try to make the whole scenario richer. So, for instance, Vonda McIntyre's Star Trek novelizations of The Wrath of Khan and, and um, I think she did Star Trek 3 too. There's kind of a more depth 
to what you see in the movie. And some of those she may have gotten from notes from the producers or something. But the idea is generally to make it kind of a richer world revolving around, in this case, it's about a 70-minute screenplay. So it's a fairly short book. But the idea is to, to take what's there and to make it a, a novel, right? It feels more like a novel then it feels like like just a movie script. Sure. I mean, they're definitely two different mediums. I mean, with the film, you've got you pictures and you've got sound. I mean, those are the only two real senses you can manipulate, whereas with a novel, you've got everything. And I'm fascinated with the idea of sitting down and watching a movie and not just transcribing it into a novel, but you did do a bit of transcription or had somebody do some transcription oh, right, right, for right, you. Yeah. So normally one works with a script to do a novelization. For instance, sure. when I did the novelization of Iron Man, there was a script that I had to basically convince them that I would never release to anybody and that it would never leave my <laughs> my my possession and that all yeah. there were all these things associated with it. And as it turns out, I found out I was the only person working on an adaptation of Iron Man that actually got to sit with the script. Oh, wow. And basically, it was, you know, Peter David, when he did his, they took him out to, I don't remember if it was New York or California, and they gave him two hours in a room with the thing, and then said, here, go write your script for, oh, wow. for it. I actually had the script for Iron Man in my house, because I basically said to him, look, I've done this for years. I live in Wisconsin. Nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> cares that I have the script for Iron Man. In my house in Wisconsin. Uh -huh. Maybe they care in California. Maybe they care in New York. But if I were to go out and stand on the street and say, I have the script to Iron Man in my house, they'd all just like, yeah, right. Who cares? That, that's nice, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Of course yeah, go you do. Back, go back and hide in your basement and keep writing. That's what you do, right? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so you'd, normally you'd have a script for something like this. Now, White Zombie is an old film. And it's in the public domain. And there might be a script for it out there somewhere. I didn't really go looking for it. Because if there was a printed script, it, maybe someone would have some kind of proprietary rights in it. But anything created from a public domain work, it, it's a public domain work. And if you use that as a basis for something, then you can own what you create. So what I did with this was I took a, a public domain copy of the movie off of um, archive.org, and I sent it out to a woman that I know who is a court reporter. And she sat down with the movie and literally transcribed the dialogue from the movie the way she would do in a, in a court reporting setting. And so what I got from her was kind of a long list of the dialogue and who had said it and that kind of stuff. That was the basis for my recreated script. I took this transcription that Andrea had supplied me, and then I sat down with the movie and watched the movie with the dialogue and basically would describe the action I was seeing on screen. So when the carriage is going through the jungles at the beginning of the movie, I'd talk a little bit about that. And then, you know, when they, it shifted scenes, I would put in the scene cuts. So what I ended up with is a recreated version of the original screenplay. It's not the original screenplay. It's a version of the screenplay that I created by watching the film. I, I don't know if the distinction there is, is uh, completely obvious, but that was how it started. And that, that process took a while because, well, for one thing, uh, court reporters are not used to dealing with the accents of Bella Lugosi and <laughs> Joseph Cawthorn. <laughs> yeah. So there were places where 
I would have to go back in and, and listen and say, wait, wait a minute. I see she, she would always get the gist of what Bella had said. But sometimes, you know, that the Bella Lugosi accent, she, the kind of marbles in the mouth thing, it would kind of be twisted and she'd, she'd get close. So I'd have to go back in and fine tune it and, and say, okay. I think this is what Bella is saying here. And the reason I know that is because I've been a monster kid for 50 years of, you know, of my 54 year old life. And I've been listening to Bella Lugosi most of that time. Yeah. (laughs) Most of us are fluent in Bella right now. So I think. Right. Yeah. But (laughs) despite that, there's, there's the one part in the, in the story where he's introducing the zombies to one of the other characters. And he has most of his introduction of the zombies is fairly straightforward if you can pierce out the fact that they all have French Creole kind of sounding names, yeah, yeah. which even that is a tricky for a transcriptionist who's used to work, <laughs> working in English. <laughs> yeah. But there's a point where Lugosi says, with him still I have troubles at times, or something like that, right? <laughs> and my wife will tell you that I've probably reran that scene more than a dozen times trying to pull out a half dozen words that Bella says oh, no. in, in that scene. And hopefully, you know, when you, when you actually see it on the page, you hopefully will never know. I mean, I suppose it's possible. Someone will write me and say, you know, he's not saying what he says there. And I'm like, I'm sorry, man. That was my best guess. I spent hours on it. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose one question I would have is, is your transcriptionist a fan of these kinds of movies or is she a fan now? No, she's kind of an ordinary person. She's um, actually, <laughs> she's she is the daughter of someone I worked with at TSR, and TSR is the Dungeons and Dragons people. And her dad worked in accounting or one of the non-game aspects of Dungeons. It might have been sales. I don't remember. I'm sorry, John. I don't remember. And so because of that, he had been in touch with one of my other friends, and I happened to be at this party that her dad and she were at. And she and I just got to talking at the party, and I discovered that she was doing a court reporter thing. And at the point that I decided it might be time to pull the trigger on doing White Zombie, the little light went off in my head and said, you know, <laughs> the thing that had been keeping me from doing it was the actual transcribing of the original dialogue. Because I'm just, you know, I'm not trained for that. Yeah, as a as a teenager, I'd sit down with a John Fogarty album and try to piece out what John said in one of his songs so we could <laughs> change it into chords and sing it, you know, together uh, oh. with my other friends. But generally, you know, listening and transcribing is not something I do. And meeting her caused this light bulb to go on over my head. Yeah, she's not a big monster kid or anything, but she was really kind of fascinated with the whole idea of doing this because it's something she'd never done anything like it before. Well, it could have been worse. He could have given her Manos or something, you know. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although Manos, at least there's no, with him I still have troubles at times. It's like, <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, along those same lines, then, i got to ask you, are you sick of the movie yet yourself? No, not really. <laughs> It was on Turner Classic Movies during the Halloween month. I actually found myself with it on in the background as I was working on it. Obviously, I've I've spent hours and hours and hours working on it and hours and hours and hours watching it. It's a very short movie, so that helps. Yeah. And it's also so stylized and beautiful. In some ways I like it better now, I think, because I've I've kind of delved deeply 
into the kind of psychology behind it and the the background and the characters, you know, I hope I've made them richer and more interesting. And so there's stuff I'm seeing now that I wasn't seeing on the first pass through. It's really an interesting film for, you know, for people that haven't seen it. It's very short, but it is made in a 1930s kind of high horror slash melodrama style. So I suppose some people might find that off-putting, but... I find it really charming. I kind of wish it I wish it was longer in some ways. Certainly there are places where the the film is broken and there's little bits of dialogue missing that I I'd, I'd love to see fully restored. Now, I have not seen the restoration that I think it was as a Criterion that brought it out on Blu-ray. So I haven't seen that that restoration because I wanted to make sure that the work that I did was based entirely on stuff that was in the public domain. The movie itself may be a public domain version, uh, uh, film, but the version that, and it was Kino, I misspoke earlier, it was Kino that put it out earlier on Blu-ray this year. Uh, that particular version of that movie is not public domain because Kino's the one that put it together, just like, you know, your novel is not public domain because it's your, you know what I mean? Right, exactly. That makes sense. Exactly. Uh, that is their interpretation of a exactly. public domain work. In theory, Metropolis is in public domain in the U.S., but mm-hmm. only the version that has been around in the U.S. for so long. So the fully restored version of Metropolis with the, you know, the score and all that kind of stuff, the, the one that's really, really, really worth seeing, that is not in the public domain. Right. That, that's a new work based on the original work, which in the U.S. at least has fallen into the public domain. Now, when it came out on Blu-ray earlier this year, I appeared on the B-MovieCast back in March and talked with Vince and Mary and Nick about the film itself. I mean, you're still kind of maybe coasting on the fumes of my male order zombie background at the time and talked a little bit about that. And I'll make sure there's a link to that episode in the show notes. I don't know if we want to really hash out plot by plot by plot, but you made some comments here that I want to, you know, I want to come back to. You said that it's kind of melodrama like that this is early thirties horror. I think that's really evident in every performer in the movie, not named Bella Lugosi. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It is, and you know that's that's one of the things that I think a lot of modern audiences, at least that aren't monster kids, have trouble dealing with the fact that the way they staged things back in the 1930s was much more stagey and was much more kind of over the top in the way that that people behave in the films. And hopefully in the novelization, I've struck a good balance between what the original is doing, and what modern audiences expect. It's a very different kind of style of acting. It's like people see the original King Kong and they say, boy, that Robert Armstrong is way over the top. And I'm like, have you seen any of the other movies from the period? Because, honestly, this is the way people behaved back then. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> no. And with White Zombie, too, specifically with these other non-Legosi performers, a lot of them came from silent act, you know, silent films, which I mean, you've got 30s acting, and then you've got silent film acting, which is mm-hmm. even more over the top because you've got no words. So it's very grandiose, and you said melodramatic, and I think that's probably the best way to describe it. It's very over the top. Right. They're really putting their bodies out there and oh, their yeah. faces out there and really kind of going for the, the lines as if they're projecting to the back of the the audience when, it, in fact, they were probably projecting to the microphone that was hidden in a bush over to the left. <laughs> Exactly, yeah, yeah. And some people can find that off-putting, but I think White Zombie is actually kind of a a good 
if if you were going to start seeing older films, this may be a good one to see because even though there are those kind of very hand wringing performances by a lot of the supporting cast, especially there are also periods where the film is nearly silent and where the visuals are carrying the film entirely. And modern modern audiences, I think, in, can really key in on that, and that presented another kind of special challenge in doing the adaptation because there's the prints on this film are not really so swell and there's a there's a funeral scene where up until the next to last draft i thought there were two characters i thought the characters at the uh, at that scene were beaumont and the butler and then literally right within the last set of revisions i suddenly saw the the film on a bigger screen than my computer it was like oh my god that's that's neil standing next to beaumont there that's not the butler i'm gonna have to do some rewrites here (laughs) because one of the jobs as a as a novelist when you're doing a novelization is to kind of explain away the inconsistencies in the script So if when I'm watching, <laughs> I'm sure White, the scriptwriters love to hear that. When I, well, and that that happens a lot of it the time happens. because yeah. of editing in the film and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And so if Neil is not at the funeral in the cut that you see, as the writer, you have to explain. Well, where the hell was Neil, and why isn't he at his wife's funeral? So I actually spent some time figuring that out and, and playing to that. And then it was like, oh my God, that's him. <laughs> He changed his clothes. He's in one suit through the entire movie, except in that scene, and he's in a different suit, and he's a tiny figure. The way they've shot the funerals is it's all from the point of view of the niche into which they are going to put the coffin. So you see him and and, uh, Beaumont in the background, and the coffin moves into the foreground and then gradually closes the hole up, and it all fades to black. Um, <laughs> so there's there's not a lot of, of detail there that's going to tell you who is who because they're so far away and they're tiny. So you depend on things like costume changes to tell you who is who. And if Neil is in a white suit in every other scene in the movie and suddenly he's in a black suit, there's a chance you'll forget, <laughs> you'll misinterpret who that is. It's like, oh, it's someone in a black suit. So if it's, if it's not Neil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're it's watching. Gonna be the bu- it's going to be the butler, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I mean, you're watching and you're like, wait a minute, I didn't think this movie had the budget for another costume. What's going on? Right. So- Well, exactly, exactly. But I guess since he was in a white suit, they figured that wasn't appropriate for funeral, which makes perfect sense. But if you're watching it on a two-inch screen on your computer, it's sometimes hard to pick that out. But as a novel writer, you you kind of try to, if there's something that doesn't make sense to you, you try to make it make sense in your novelization. And when I was working on Thunderbirds, there was a scene early on in the, the script where... I think it's FAB1. It's where the pink Rolls Royce is destroyed, right? Okay. And then later in the in the script, it just shows back up. As the one that was novelizing that film, I was like, well, people are going to remember <laughs> that it blew up in scene four, and then it's completely intact in scene 14. So I have to figure out how to how to explain that, you know, and whether it's it's just a, a line that says Oh, this is Fab Two, <laughs> right? Well, there you go. You have to figure that out. But I, and the the hazard of being someone that does this is you can spend a lot of time doing that, and then it doesn't matter. So 
I spent time talking with my editor and rereading the script and figuring out where I could introduce the fact that this was another one that they had in the garage and <laughs> no one should worry about it. And then when I saw the final movie, they cut out the scene where it had blown up. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so it was like, wait a minute. I spent all this time figuring out how to, how to explain this away, and then you, you just used a jump cut to eliminate the fact that <laughs> it had been destroyed in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I've actually heard that as well about other novels. Like, um, I believe it's the novelization for Darkman, the ending of the, mo- the novel. It's completely different than the movie because the script that they were working off of when they were writing the novel ended up going through some changes and that sort of thing. And I mean, nobody's going to tell the the person who's doing the adaptation, you know, that there's been a change on set or whatever. So, yeah, I'm fascinated by by that as well. Now, obviously, with White Zombie, it's not like somebody went back and reshot something after you wrote the novel, right? You know, we already have a very solid touchstone to to look at, and. I guess compare your book to, I mean, is it fair to compare the two or you, you think it's its own beast at this point? I do think it's com- fair to compare the two. In fact, you know, if you're really wanting to compare the two, there is the special edition of White Zombie includes my very creation of the script. So you can actually take the script as I saw it and then compare that to the film. And I didn't go back in and, and doctor the script to match the film. I might have taken out some of, um, Dr. Bruner has a tendency has a tendency to 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 stutter and and repeat words. <laughs> sure, sure. So I I would take out those words and say Dr. Bruner has the tendency to repeat words and stutter, right? right. <laughs> so th- there are little corrections like that. But in terms of changing the dialogue to fit what I did later, no, I I didn't do any of that. So you the comparison is there and I invite it in the fact that I think the people that like the movie are going to like the adaptation. I could have chatted with Steve about White Zombie and the writing process for hours. I was about to say months, but yeah, probably months. I love that film, and I love the fact that he's turned this into a novel. I was blown away. I mean, I tried real hard to be impartial and do the interview thing and and keep it, you know, professional, but... I couldn't help it. I fawned a little bit over him, and I do a little bit more fawning over the book in the next episode of Monster Kid Radio in part two of our chat with Stephen E. Sullivan about White Zombie, the novel. In part two, we'll talk a little more in depth about what went into creating the characters and imbuing more than just the sense of sight and sound into a story that up until this point, we've only really known as sight and sound because that's pretty much all a movie can do. So I'm really looking forward to sharing that with everybody in a couple of days in part two of our chat with Stephen E. Sullivan. That'll be coming out on Thursday, November 14th. Come back to monsterkidradio.net for that or look us up in iTunes or check us out on Stitcher. Speaking of iTunes, I want to say thank you to everybody who's given us a rating over there in the iTunes store. As of this recording, we have 23 reviews in the iTunes store. For anybody who's just now joining us, here's the deal. A challenge. If we can get 50 honest reviews in the iTunes store, I do something different here on Monster Kid Radio. Something new. And I'll tell you right now, you know what? I'm tired of sitting on it. It will be a supplemental podcast. A special podcast devoted to a very specific subject that's going to be in the wheelhouse of all of us Monster Kids. I think people are going to really enjoy it. If we can get 50 reviews in the iTunes store, we'll start making that happen. 
Last week on Monster Kid Radio, we had sculptor, returning guest, and all-around great guy Tom Bigler on the show to talk about the 1966 film Island of Terror, starring Peter Cushing, my man. I love this movie. I love the conversation that I had with Tom, and I love the fact that he has donated another piece of artwork for a contest for Monster Kid Radio listeners to enter. Here's the deal. Head over to monsterkidradio.net, go to our website, check out episodes 44 and 45 of the podcast. The images of those episodes are close-ups of the sculpture. So you can see what it is. Now, this is not just a bust. This is a diorama. There are multiple silicates. That's the monster from Island of Terror. And if you didn't already know that, shame on you. Go watch the movie. There are multiple silicates set up here. One is doing something really kind of gross. It's a great-looking diorama. It's a contest. It's a drawing. Here's how you enter. When we were chatting, Tom compared Island of Terror to a somewhat recent monster movie. And we're going to play off of that idea. Email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, your name, your mailing address, and the name of a monster movie within the past 10 years, a recent movie within the past 10 years that you think monster kids should see. Pretty simple. We're going to take entries until the end of the month. November 30th is the cutoff date for this. So get your emails in. Only one entry per person, and I've already got a handful of entries. So if you want in on this, send in your entry ASAP. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivations, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song Electric Zombie, which appears on the album Introducing Waka Jawaka by the band Waka Jawaka. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. Talk to you in a couple of days. (laughs) 